Working Class Audio is brought to you by Roswell Pro Audio, Gearsluts.com, The License Lab, Audio-Technica, and Universal Audio. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 195. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 195 you're listening to. My guest today is Sherry Klein. Sherry is a post-production recording mixer in the world of television and film, and she currently lives in Los Angeles and works over at Smart Post Sound in Burbank. And some of her past credits include Queen of the South, Reverie, Burn Notice, Arrested Development, Sons of Anarchy, one of my favorites, and The Shield. And she's also a board member of the CAS, which is the Cinema Audio Society, and chairs their annual Student Recognition Awards. So yeah, Sherry Klein coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. And you know, I can't forget to give a shout out to soundgirls.org. They were instrumental in connecting Sherry and I for this interview. I was over at soundgirls.org looking through the site, read this interview that April Tucker did with Sherry, and I'll include a link to that original interview that April did, and started to try to find information on Sherry to connect and could not find any. So I emailed Soundgirls, and they immediately got me connected within literally like two hours. I got an email from Sherry saying, just saw the Working Class Audio site. It's fantastic. How can I help? And so we quickly put together this interview and uh, or scheduled this interview. So I'm really grateful to Sound Girls. If you haven't checked them out, they are, of course, at soundgirls.org. And that is a uh, 501c3 nonprofit. And their mission statement is to inspire and empower the next generation of women in audio. And that was, of course, started by uh, veteran live sound engineers, Carrie Keys and Michelle sabelchick Padanato. So you should check them out. They're at soundgirls.org. I'll, of course, include a link in the show notes. So yeah, thank you to soundgirls.org. All right, grab your coffee. I'm going to ramble about some random shit. All right, so I'm cleaning up. Studio is once again a mess. You know, it seems like, I don't know how many, like, probably like every six episodes I report to you that my studio is a mess. What is the deal with that? Stuff's always changing. Um, Anyways, cleaning up, came across my prized Clark Kent cassette. It was out on A&M Records. Anybody know who uh, Clark Kent was? No, I'm not talking about Superman. This was a solo album by Stuart Copeland. Yeah, that's right. Um, So I'm going to digitize this cassette for my own personal use, of course. Don't come sue me, Stuart, because I want to preserve it. And I don't know if you can find this on CD anywhere. Anyhow, there's that. Oh, and here's a good story for you. You know how I'm always promoting using Backblaze? Well... Now I can put my money where my mouth is, friends, because my Drobo brand raid went down. That's got, I don't know how many years of stuff on it. You know, it could have been a potential horror story. All I did was I logged into Backblaze. I clicked on the Drobo drive in the backup history and said, give me everything that was on the Drobo drive. And they're sending me out a USB drive with everything on it for me to restore. And then I can return that USB drive and get my money back for the drive. I don't even have to pay for the drive long term. It's like a rental. 
Yeah. So, Backblaze. I'll include a link in the show notes if, if listeners you're unfamiliar with it or those who are new to the show. But Backblaze saved my ass this time, and I'm really, really happy to tell you that they did since I've been pushing in on you for some time. So, back your shit up, people. Got to do it. All right, so you know, I got to give a shout out to our friends over at Universal Audio. Grateful to them for their help, for their support of the podcast. Uh, of course, you know, they did recently release some new interfaces. Let's go over there, uaudio.com. Oh, yeah, there they are, the Apollo X series. Uh, basically, uh, these Apollos now have six of those shark chips in them, and uh, they come in different combinations. There's four different interfaces available, and uh, you should check that out. That's at uaudio.com. The Apollo X6, the X8, the X8P, and the X16. Yeah, check those out. Those are pretty sexy. I like that. Also want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Gearslits.com, who I'm also grateful for their support of the show. Now... We like to support them, too, so we sponsor the sub-forum known as Audio Life. And I know my longtime listeners are all, of course, they know exactly what I'm about to say. But for you new listeners, uh, Audio Life is basically a sub-forum that is not gear-related, just like working-class audio. You know, they touch on it a little bit, just like we do. But, you know, it's about, you know, discussions of the audio pro's life. Yeah how to handle certain things out there in the world. Could be anything. Doctors, lawyers, clients, business, money, all these different things. Check that out at uh, gearsluts.com. And speaking of people I'm grateful for, I'm really grateful to all you who listen. Um, As you know, this is episode 195. We are five away from episode 200. Uh, we're going to do something a little special for 200. I don't want to tell you what it is. Got to keep it a surprise, right? So make sure you tune in for 200. Until then, we have five more or four more to go technically after this before we hit 200. But uh, yeah, grateful to you. Thank you for listening. It's a, it's a pleasure to continue to do this show for you. I get a lot out of it. I hope you do. And uh, I will continue to do it. We'll, uh, we'll see when you take it to 300. What do you think? I think that's good. All right, let's do this. Sherry Klein here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Sherry, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you on. And I discovered who you were by going to soundgirls.org, which for my listeners, if you haven't been there, you should check it out. Thank you again for being here. And I want to give a special shout out to uh, Carrie Keys for so rapidly getting me connected with you. Where did you grow up? I grew up in on the East Coast. I grew up in, I was born in Jersey City. Way back then, it was the armpit of the universe. <laughs> I grew up in Paramus, New Jersey, okay. right over the George Washington Bridge. Stayed there until I started going to college. And when you say you went to college, I, I've read up on you a bit. You've been to a few colleges. Well, I never really went to college to get a degree. I went to college to get what I needed to get out of school and then move mm. on. It was never my intention to get a degree. My first college was Webster College. 
I think it's Webster University now, but it had just converted from being an all-girls Catholic school, I think, into a co-educational sort of Antioch-style school in St. Louis, or in Webster Groves, Missouri, outside of St. Louis. And the way that I found it was being in the guidance office and literally doing one of those A, B, C, D, E, F, uh, I'll take that one, and pulled out like four or five books. I knew that I was applying already to Antioch and to Goddard, and actually got into both of them, but didn't go for different reasons. And Webster seemed to be a good combination of both of those. Antioch at that time was very uh, Marxist. And Goddard was skiing to classes. It was so cold there, I just went, I can't do this. <laughs> it was at the end of the 60s, it was the early 70s, and it was just a crazy time. So uh, I chose Webster, and I went out there for about a year, and I studied classical music. They had a, a great music department. After being there for about half a year and studying counterpute, counterpoint and fugue in the morning. It was just a little bit too much for my brain. I realized that was not what I wanted to study. So I decided to apply to Berklee College of Music, which at the time was a much smaller school. There were about 800 kids. I think there were 50 girls to 800 guys, 600 guys, 700 guys. I mean, it was really not a place where women went to. And I applied and got in for the next season, for the next semester, uh, starting in September. So between January and the summer, I hitchhiked cross country, figured I'd get to see a lot of stuff. And I would move to Boston after that and go to Berkeley, which is basically what I did. Hmm. Hitchhiking was still okay. I was going to say, people um, don't really hitchhike these days. No, it was the early 70s. And hitchhiking was still a national sport. Route 66 still existed. And that's what people went along and leapfrogged all over the country, and I was with somebody else. And yeah, we had a number of really interesting experiences. But at that point in my life, I was a musician. I wasn't really into sound. And my, my major at Berkeley was going to be arranging composition. And it was the diploma program, which was intensive music and not academics, because as I said, I had no intention of graduating. Mm -hmm. And I stayed at Berkeley for close to four semesters, I think. No, fifth semester. It was the beginning of my fifth semester that I ended up leaving. But during that time, a lot of things transpired in my life. And I started realizing that the people there found it very easy to do everything. The, the assignments, the writing, the this, the that. I was better at arranging uh, than composing at that time. I think learning all the technique of music and theory it made my ability to think of anything as original as an impossibility. Hmm. I became too technically oriented. So at a certain point, I handed in a paper or an arrangement, and I turned to my friend and I said, if this thing flies and I get an A on it, I'm quitting. <laughs> because technically it was perfect, but it was the worst piece of shit I'd ever written in my life. <laughs> and I got it back the next week, and there was an A on it, and I went to the dean the next day, and I ended up quitting. And I had just gotten into this class, Herb Pomeroy's line writing class, which was the class to get into in fifth uh -huh. semester. And I said, no, I got to be out of here. I got to be out of here. But during some of the time that I was there, I had spent a lot of time in a two-track studio that they had run by a guy named Joe Hofstetter. And just watching and observing and starting to get fascinated with sound, enough so that when I quit Berkeley, I studied at Boston School of Electronic Music and then took some classes, audited classes at a few places, and, and sound started becoming something that I was interested in. 
that two track experience, do you remember any certain feelings of, wow, this is a fascinating thing. Maybe this could be my path. You know, it wasn't, this could be my path. It was more like, this is really cool stuff. Wow. How does this all work? You know? And, and I mean, you got to realize this is Berkeley has major stuff now, you know, major recording gear and studios. When I went there, it was mainly the Boylston street and there was a small building on Newberry street. It was at the beginnings of Berkeley's growth. And it was just a two-track studio in the basement, literally in the basement of the school. And there was a small recording space and Joe was just a master. There wasn't even really a class necessarily. I just kind of found it by chance and really enjoyed it. So when I left Berkeley, I needed a job. I needed to find some jobs. There were couple of things that were available to me. And I figured a recording studio would be a good place. And there was a crazy little recording studio in Dorchester, Massachusetts, run by a guy, I won't say his name, but it was sort of like, you know, the epitome of what you'd think of in terms of Italian mafia movie. Kind of a caricature? A real caricature. And he was a sweetheart, but he was also extremely girls don't belong in the studio and you can be my secretary, you know, like answer the phone. Now, first of all, I never learned to type. First thing to know about me. One of my teachers at Berkeley was sweet enough to take me aside at one point when I was, when I was leaving and said, I understand why you're leaving. Don't ever learn to type. You have far too much talent to be stuck in an office typing. And I went, Okay, that registered, that registered. He said, because they will put you there. So here I am going to be somebody's assistant, not secretary, assistant, answer the phones, do little things here and there. And I'm like, I can't type. He said, can you use two fingers? I said, yeah, that's about as fast as I can type. And he said, okay, that's fine. You're not going to be typing anything. There's a secretary here who can do it. You answer my phone and you'd be my, you know, my front person. And I said, okay. So through that, I observed a lot of recording because he did a lot of um, orchestral dates in the studio. Um, He would sell album packages to locals and, you know, there would be say six tracks on there, which would have different people's voices on, although they didn't know that. So you had to be really careful. The engineers had to be really careful that they, they didn't put the track up because everybody was paying for that same package (laughs) individually. (laughs) That was, was very shyster. Okay. And there was an engineer there who was an absolute sweetheart. And he taught me a lot of stuff. He taught me after hours, a lot of stuff. Taught me enough so that eventually he threatened this and then did it. He called in, well, called in because of a snowdrift. His car was stuck in a snowdrift during a big Boston snowstorm. And uh, they were kind of hung up because they had an orchestra and I had set up the whole, you know, I had helped set up the whole room with the assistant. And he called in and said, I can't get there. And the boss said, what am I going to do? And he said, well, Sherry can do it. And he went, what? He goes, yeah, get, let Sherry just at least get things started until I get there, you know, the waiting for the snow plows. And so he did, you know, he, he was not too thrilled about it, but he let me do it and I got through it. And then when Bobby came in, he took over, but he gave me this little mischievous grin because I knew that it was all bullshit. <laughs> Meanwhile, the assistant engineer wanted, was leaving. And so Bobby said, why don't you go for it? I said, Joe will never let me do it. He said, go for it. I said, okay. So I went for it and I sat down and I had been there almost a year and I told Joe, I really want to do this. He said, okay, you're going to take a reduction in pay. I'll let you do it. But if you screw up once, you're out. And I went, deal. 
So I became the assistant engineer doing all the setups and everything. And during that time also, I was taking, strangely enough, I was studying classical counterpoint and fugue with this amazing professor from Boston University, Hugo Norton, who was a brilliant man. And it was very interesting because it brought me back to the roots from Webster. And I was studying it because it gave me a completely different insight into the jazz harmony and theories that I learned in Berkeley. And strangely enough, the combination of all of it gave me back my creativity. It was a whole new set of rules that I knew before, but I was breaking all the rules at the same time. And there was something very cool about that in my Mm -hmm. brain. So I was doing the sound thing. I was also taking classes at Boston School of Electronic Music. And so I was, you know, working with ARP 2600s and and Moog synthesizers and just like all this really neat gear. And the really neat gear is what kind of really fascinated me, plus being in the studio. And I learned how to edit. They did a lot of children's albums, so I would do a whole lot of editing. You know, it's fairly scattered, but that's how my career has always been. You know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And so one night we had these two guys come over to do some work on the studio. And in those days, you just kind of sat around with people and got stoned. And we just sat around and got stoned after hours once. They said they were building a studio and they really liked me and they liked my ideas and my thoughts. And they said, do you want to join us? And I went, like, join you? Like, like engineer? Like, be an engineer? And he went, yeah, we're building a 16-track studio and, you know, it's in Brighton and it's going to be really cool. We're building it from the ground up and we've got another partner and, you know, you can be a partner and, you know, all that stuff. And I went, yeah, sure. So I quit AAA Studios. (laughs) I quit them and I went over to this new studio, Hub Studios. And these two guys were awesome, Don Richardson and John Miller. They were a lot older than me. I didn't realize it at the time, but they had, you know, a lot more experience than me. And from them, I really learned the art of recording because we built a shell within a shell that sank after six months. Uh, I remember the exact moment that we realized that the shell had sunk because the truck went by and we were laying on the floor one night being really proud of ourselves and our drum booth and all the stuff that we did. And all of a sudden we looked at each other and went, I think we sank. We coupled and we did. We actually. What, what did happen? Know, we didn't do it okay. right. We didn't do it right. We, we just didn't do it right. I mean, this was the kind of studio and it was a wonderful little place that recorded fantastic stuff with so many of the Boston heavies, you know, now that are Boston heavies. But we had a makeshift board that was rotary pots when we were using, um, and I even told this to sound girls, we were using like Hammond Springs, you know, like a little reverb unit that would sit under the console. And if we wanted to cut the delay time, you know, the decay time, we'd stick some pieces of fiberglass on it, you know, and if we wanted to open it up, then we'd take it off. It it was crazy. Our our DDL was like a bi-directional Neumann mic downstairs, you know, in the basement facing off of glass. And, you know, I mean, it, it was an incredible way to learn things because, you had nothing, so you had to make everything. What year was that, roughly? 1973, four. Okay, and I want to point something out to my listeners. I've got um, a printout here, kind of a brochure from Hub Studios. The rate <laughs> at that time was yes. $50 an hour, just to show you all how little rates have changed for studios. It was a fascinating time to be working in the business. 
I remember I was so into listening to sound in any way, shape, or manner, you know, that I could, and doing demos. And, and I was pretty lucky because even though I was a girl, at that time, I knew a lot of the musicians in town because I was at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. So I was a known entity to a lot of the jazz musicians that came in, a lot of the musicians that came in. I was also a known entity in town because I was a musician. So I had a certain amount of credential. And so I didn't have as hard a time with the musicians as, say, other studio owners. There were a lot of people that worked in the studios who really dismissed me when the three of us, the two guys and myself, Don, John, and myself would go to another, visit another studio. Many times I was kind of dismissed and kind of put in the background, although they made sure I made it into the forefront. But there was one or two people who really zeroed right in on me. And there's one guy who I haven't seen in years, but lives in Florida, I believe now. We're still Facebook friends, but from the very start, he saw something in me. And so he always was somebody who rallied behind me for, for many, many years, even when he lived in LA and stuff. He was one of the few that really took me seriously at the time. But the guys that I was with, they took me 100% seriously. So I had no problems. I had my studio and I was working and I was engineering and I was learning and I was wiring. I mean, when we built the studio, I was the smallest one in the group. So of course I got to wire the conduits between the shell within the shell in 99 degree weather and humidity in Boston. But, and me with the fiberglass and everything, I was up there wiring. I did all that wow. stuff. So it was a great education. I, I will never fault that time because the education was so thorough in audio and things that I didn't need to know, but it was great that I did. And get to such learn. a supportive environment there for you to really to it really was. grow. It was. It really was. And then you left in 1976 and went to Los Angeles. Is that correct? Yeah. In 1976, I decided it was time to really take it seriously. And also, I think I, I think at that time, our studio was closing. We were all going different directions. Well, from my hitchhiking trip and from another trip, Don John and I, when we, when we were building the studio, we took this crazy hippie bus out to California, you know, went to LA and then San Francisco, the yellow bus or whatever. And we did that. And we went to all the studios in San Francisco and out in Marin to just get an idea of what we could and couldn't do. Um, anything that was big in that day, and we were able to get appointments via the two of them, we, we went in and just looked around and talked to them and, you know, got ideas and thoughts of how we could put our studio together, even though our budget was far lower than what they had uh -huh. to work with. So from that time and that experience, it really made me realize I wanted to get, to get out to L.A. Now, the choice was for me to move to New York or L.A. New York was a known mm -hmm. end day. I had taken all my music lessons in there, all my guitar lessons, all, you know, everything from the age of 13. So I knew New York, but I had never been on the other side of the glass. I had only been on the performer side of the glass any time that I did any recording. So I just decided that L.A. was new territory and I was up for new territory and adventure. So I was going to move out to L.A. And while I was doing different jobs in LA and to make money. And while I was working at our studio, I was also doing live sound at Paul's Mall Jazz Workshop and a place called The Garage at the time. So I was picking up gigs wherever I could. I was working with bands, live sound. I was doing a little bit of everything to make ends meet because we were a struggling new studio. When I moved out here, I knew one person and 
stayed with them for, you know, to start out my career. But the truth of the matter was I got a basic map of the studios in Los Angeles and I was living down in Redondo Beach and I would drive up and I would just start dropping off resumes. Got callbacks from a lot of places. It was really interesting. I think it was a case of um, people were curious because I had credits, I had credentials. I had all the work that I had done in Boston, plus my musical background at Berkeley. One of the people that called me in was Larrabee Studios, and they were a very big studio at that time. They were recording everybody. And Jackie Mills, who was one of the owners, Jackie and Dolores, were amazing people. So Jackie called me in and said, you know, you need to go for interviews with these people. And one was the head of their maintenance department, Bob Stone, who I fell in love with. I I adored him. But everybody that walked out of his office, male or female, cried because he was a hard ass. He was, you know, he made you feel like you were a centimeter high. That's just the way he was. He was a real hard ass. But I walked out smiling. For one reason or another, I kind of like enjoyed him. He challenged me. And so I liked him. So they noticed that. And Jackie called me up. Uh, to talk a little further. And then the most amazing amazing timing happened. A client that I had in Boston who became really good friends of mine got a record deal. And they had to come out to LA and record a demo for Al It was for Al Cooper. Al Cooper was producing their album. And so they said, we've got three songs we need to record. We have $3,000. Do you think you could find a place to do it? So I went to Jackie Mills and I said, hey, I've got this client from Boston. They need a studio. I need to do a demo for them. I got three grand. I know it's not a lot of money, but is there any way you could help me out this way? At least you could see what I was doing. And so he said, yeah. So we went in to record in Studio B. At the time, uh, they had a Spectrasonics board and Tavi Mote, who's passed on, was one of their engineers. Tavi was my assistant. And he set me up and helped me get myself together on the board and get everything happening. And so I did the session and it came out really well. And Tavi told Jackie, she knows what she's doing. So the next day he came out and he gave me, I remember he took me out to the parking lot and he, he, he gave me my keys, a hat and a t-shirt. And he said, you know, if a chick's gonna make it in this town, she better be from New York and have some balls. I think you're her. <laughs> Exactly. I never forgot that. I never forgot that. And then he gave me a hug and that was it. And I was in. And so I was an assistant, assistant engineer. You were saying it was Bob Stone who was the hard ass, right? Yeah. You mentioned the East Coast. Do you think it was a little bit of an East Coast thicker skin that allowed you to like get past Bob Stone's rough exterior? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I've lived out here 30 years or more at this stage, but The truth of the matter is you can never take the New York out of the girl. (laughs) You know, I mean, I was navigating the streets of New York, taking my music lessons, you know, walking down 42nd Street to get to the Port Authority, you know, when I took the wrong train up from the village, you know, where am I? I, You know, all that stuff was happening when I was a kid, when I was like 13 years old and started taking my music lessons in the city. So I had a pretty thick skin. What were the takeaways from your time at Larrabee? I had a couple of things going for me. First of all, 
I knew I wasn't going to advance into a mixer's, an engineer's mm-hmm. position unless somebody dropped dead there because there were all seasoned engineers who were there for a long time and they weren't about to leave. You know, people just didn't leave those studio jobs. So I figured, okay, I'll be the best dance assistant engineer that I can be. And the fact that I could read scores helped um, uh, because those were the disco days also. And so you'd have somebody come in and you were punching in and out, you know, on the machines. It was analog. And so I could read scores. And so if a composer said to me, I want to go in here and I want to come out there on an orchestral thing, I'd go, okay. And I go, boom, boom, you know, and I was able to punch in and out like crazy because as fast as the machines could do it, I could do it. So that gave me brownie points. And the fact that my ears were very tuned in to things. So over a period of time, I got to start doing a lot of the publishing demos that they used Mm -hmm. to do. There were a bunch of groups that people that I worked with on on publishing demos for Motown. And eventually I started doing some engineering work. And then also there was, which I said and talked about in Sound Girls, time with Jack Nitsche, working on Michelle Phillips' album, where the engineer that I was working with, Kim King, had to go up north to San Francisco to, to start an album or complete some, some work. And so he left the overdubs with me. And that's, that was my first major credit, which was Jack saying girl engineer and boy engineer on the back oh. of the record, which I thought was totally cool. <laughs> <laughs> it was totally cool. He was, he was great. My takeaway from Larrabee was a tremendous learning experience. I got to work with some of the greatest. At the time, Bruce Botnick was a producer and I got to work on all his stuff. I mean, for a while, I was just doing everything with him. He brought me in to do the Cal Jam tapes with Andy Johns, which was a phenomenal wow. experience, of which afterwards I got to go to, Andy invited me to um, uh, United Western to watch his sessions, a couple of sessions with Stones and a few other people, and it was just amazing. I mean, the people that, that, I, was, that I had a chance to observe um, and mix with and watch their styles, it was beyond belief. It was some of the best of the best engineers and producers. I was a sponge. I just absorbed everything that I could get my hands on and everything they put out to me. And they did give me the knowledge. You know, there were times where Jackie would use, and they had a nickname for it, it was, it was Shay, because you didn't know if it was Sherry or you didn't know what it was. Shay was an easy nickname that they'd tell the client, Shay will be there at such and such time, you know, and then I'd walk in and they'd go, Shay, a, a girl, you know? <laughs> and, and a lot of times it was cool. A lot of times it, it was actually okay. They'd be taken back but for a second. Um, and then there's the, the one experience that I also mentioned before, which was um, Jackie telling me, uh, just get it, you know, hang on to every four letter word you could ever think of because you're going to meet somebody who's going to freak out as soon as they realize you're a girl. But I think it's because they've got that proper British thing going on and they want to be careful of their mouth. I said, okay. And so he brought me in and the guy freaked. (laughs) Actually, it was Andy. And it freaked. and, And Jackie just looked at me and said, do it. And so I just wrapped off everything and every phrase I could. And I looked at him and he went, jelly good. Let's go. You know, it was like something like that. It was just so British. And and then we were, you know, we were locked into a studio together for like seven days, you know, sleeping on couches. And, you know, the, the record company brought in all the food and 
and, you know, go home and take showers or something. But it was just a constant state of putting tapes on and mixing them and overdubbing people and groups as they came in. And it was a fantastic experience in the end. Shout out to our friends over at Roswell Pro Audio who helped make the Working Class Audio podcast possible. Recently had the pleasure of using their Mini K47 mic, which is priced at $299 on a Marshall cabinet. And I got to tell you, it sounded absolutely amazing. And that's going to be part of my setup from here on out. So if you want to check it out, go over to roswellproaudio.com. And they do offer free shipping. But if you really want to help our cause with them, Make sure on the checkout when you're buying a mic that you include the code WCA free ship. And that way they know that you came from us and you heard about Roswell Pro Audio from Working Glass Audio. So there it is. Check it out. RoswellProAudio.com. I, I don't mean to sound naive, but objectively, why were people so put off by you being a woman in the studio? I don't believe it was put off as much as not mm. used to, okay? The few that might have been put off uh, might have been just fear of being able to let loose. So as soon as they realized I could let loose and I didn't give a shit, you know, that it was okay, I didn't care. Yeah, I had a bunch of them come on to me. I was this young, you know, cute little thing back then. And most of them were extremely respectful when they realized, because at the time I was living with somebody, I said, you know, I'm, I've got a relationship I'm living with. The questions that they asked me were like, are you happy? Yeah. Does he appreciate you? Yeah. Is he really a good man? I'm like, yeah. Okay, cool. Let's go have a drink. You know, and that was the way it was mm. dealt with. Um, there was no heavy duty pressure. I had one or two experiences later on when I was doing orchestrations and stuff with some major people. And I basically went to the boss and told him, and he said, I won't put you with that client anymore. I said, thank you. Hmm. That's all. But aside from that, it was still a new enough time. I mean, even my cohorts, you know, like Lenise and, and Terry and all those, I mean, all of us, I don't think we can have it. We can even say that we had bad experiences back then because we were females. I think it was just, we had the tougher climb to get somewhere. I can honestly say that I probably would have gotten further in the industry had I not been a female, but that was just the times. I don't attribute that to a backlash as much as the time. You and the late Terry Becker and, and Lenise uh, Bent and Leslie Ann Jones were, were trailblazers of your time. Yeah. I mean, Leslie, I think there was that picture on um, Sound Girls. We hadn't seen each other in a hundred years and Lenise and I see each other. We managed to stay because we're both in town. But Leslie and I hadn't seen each other in 100 years, but we definitely stayed in touch, especially through people. She's up at Skywalker, and I have friends up there. And, and us seeing each other that day was really so wonderful because there was such a strong kinship, you know, when we first met and we were first, you know, she was at Capitol, I was at Laravie, Lenise and Terry, you know, Lenise was at Village, Terry was at Record Plant. And just finding out that we existed at that time was enough for all of us to go, yeah, cool. Yeah. It was just a, a wonderful thing. I mean, none of us really had issues. I mean, that was one of the first things that I used to tell people as I moved on my career, you know, don't have a chip on your shoulder. I can name you 20 guys who were the reason that I moved up in the world in audio because they helped me and they had faith in me and they gave me their knowledge. You know, it's just, we entered at a time where there weren't a lot of women. 
So we had to start it somewhere. We had a we had a kick ass and push to make it happen. You know, it's not that it was a negative thing. It was the times. I want to talk to you about your transition into a, a different aspect of this, and that's post. Yeah. Was that just a, a collapse in the music industry at that point in time or just a, a drop in business that ultimately led you to go to post? Yes. And I think it was around 1983. The bottom kind of dropped out of the music industry. A lot of record labels started folding. Work became fewer and far between. It became a little bit more difficult to get work as a record engineer. A lot of people owed me big money and I was not thrilled with that fact either because it was not so much people as record labels that were going down. Yeah. So, you know, if you were lucky, you got a little bit on, on the money owed you. And I was doing more scoring dates. Somebody took me in to, to do a lot of scoring dates and that was fun, but it wasn't what I wanted to do. And then there was a mixer who was working over at KTTV who I had worked on a couple of albums with as an assistant mm -hmm. engineer and done some overdubs for him. And he was a real sweetheart. And he was going on vacation and he said, hey, I need somebody to fill in. Why don't you come over here? And I think you'd be the perfect person. It was downstairs, I remember. And, you know, I, it was a multi-track machine and it was, I don't even remember what the console was, some old console. He said, you already know all this stuff. You just need to know they had a CMX synchronizer, which was paper tape. What, what's that? And he goes, well, that's for the time code and that regulates. And he explained everything to me. And I went, well, what do I do with it? And he explained everything to me. And I said, okay. And he goes, you're going to have to get into this union, NABIT. And I'm like, okay. And it, it just kind of went on with me just sitting there going, okay, okay, okay. It's kind of weird, but okay. I did that for like three or four weeks. And then he came back and he decided that he was going to move to Florida, I think. Uh, he took, took a job at Disney World or something. Anyway, I got to keep the job. So I stayed with KTTV for about a year and did some sitcoms and did whatever it was that they threw at me. And then met a guy in West LA and he was doing a crazy magazine show format called You Asked For It. And I got hired by a woman, Cheryl Murphy, who at the time was working there and later became one of my best friends. But I got hired to work on that show. And that was working with a Q-Lock synchronizer. And I think it was an Adam Smith also. I, I got introduced to a whole bunch of new equipment and also working a magazine format show. You sort of do everything. Mm. Once, you can, once you've done a magazine format, you can kind of figure out and navigate the rest of it because you're doing voiceover, you're recording stuff, you're laying, you're editing stuff, you're doing everything. And this is all, you know, this is not digital yet. We're still in, in analog domain. So that was kind of the beginning of my transition into post. It was, you asked for it. And then there was another Disney show called You and Me Kid. <laughs> and I was the music editor on it. I was the sound, sound cutter. You know, I sort of, did a little bit of, of everything with that. And it was all, again, you know, with tape machines and stuff. And then I decided that I needed to start really looking for a, a home. At the time, I wasn't in the union, so I knew that those places were out. And I didn't really know what the deal was with post-production per se. So there was this little studio called EFX Systems in Burbank, and it was run by a guy named George Johnson. And it was a music studio that was transitioning into post-production. George hired me. And so there was music going on. There was post-production going on. We had 
all different consoles. I don't remember half of what we had when we got started, but that was the beginning of my real foray into post-production as a career. Did you have any um, reservations about going into post-production? Oh, yeah. The minute I had an album, I left post and went right to that album. (laughs) Because post was boring and albums were so much fun. Music was what my, where my heart was. So for many years, I went back and forth, and back and forth, and back and forth. Post started getting more interesting somewhere in there. Aside from the fact that it was no longer mono, it was stereo. At EFX, George had this vision. He was like the kind of person that you put him in a think tank and let other people execute his stuff. And he's like, he was like a visionary. So he was the, we were the first studio to have um, Post Pros. Did you design Post Pros? to really be able to start working in the digital domain. Uh, Before that, it was still all analog. When you're editing, when you're doing anything, it was like you were were running, you know, four-track tape machines with pieces that you were running off to 16 or 24-track machines and then locking things up. It was was Hmm. insane when I think of how long it took us to do these things. But when we got the post-pros, then it became a digital domain. That's when everything changed for us. You seem to, like, on one one side of you was really enjoying the the fun that comes with record making with bands, but you had mentioned much earlier in our conversation about the the technical that appeals to you as well. And so this must have been just, like, a great, great time. It was a huge, like I said, I've said this many times, Pro Tools for me was like entering into a vast video game arcade. Because, which I loved, you know, I I used to be a real avid gamer, not so much anymore, but I used to be. To me, it was like, oh my God, this is so cool. I think that's why what I ended up doing was a perfect marriage of everything that I knew. You know, my ears were being used, rhythm, you know, sonics, the technique and technical aspects of things. It just, you know, my eyes were wide and I really enjoyed it. And so when... EFX got the post pros and the and the synclaviers. I wasn't editing on them, but I was a mixer, and I was mixing, and they were using that stuff. Di- were you doing dialogue or music at the time? I was just dialogue. Okay. Or if I was doing an audio sweetening thing, I worked with an effects mixer, and it was two man, and it was dialogue, music, and the effects. But on the bigger shows, like when we were doing thirty something, I was dialogue. Rusty Smith was a, was effects, and Bill Freach was music. And they're all mixers in their own right now. Vastly different world from making records, right? Vastly different. Vastly different. And really, really cool in a lot of ways. Because it's, I I really believe that the combination of my background in rhythm and sound and music makes me a better mixer today. Makes me lean more towards natural and... um, just even, you know, when you get into ADR replacement and things like that and trying to graph things together, it's like, I'll try anything once, you know, and won't even look up at the picture until I'm done creating what I'm creating. And a lot of it has to do with rhythm and pitch. And I'm very conscious to that, you know, I'm very aware of that. Were the studios slow to adopt Pro Tools as, as the way to do it? Yes, and then they all lunged. When I, I was at Sony for almost 10 years, And when I left Sony, I went to a studio that was, as far as I knew, the only full Pro Tools studio in town. And I kind of cold called them and they said, you people don't leave lots. (laughs) And I went, 
uh, I want to break into this realm, this new realm of Pro Tools. At that time, the union was offering Pro Tools classes because they could see the next wave. So there were, you know, you had these weekend classes that you'd go to and Friday night you'd go in not knowing anything. And by Sunday, you were ready to go on Pro Tools, which I thought was crap. So I found somebody else and paid separately out of my own pocket to learn it in a way that I felt was more advantageous. And that took about three weeks. Plus, it's a guy named Chilitos Valenzuela who runs Audiograph International here in Santa Monica, which is an accredited Pro Tools school. As soon as he realized I was a professional and we were in similar age demographics than the rest of the kids in the class, he just went, hey, anytime you're off, just come down, use the facility, anything I can do for you, whatever. And that became fantastic because I learned over those next three or four weeks, I really learned the ins and outs of Pro Tools and operations. I'm not really 100% clear on this, so I want to clarify. When things were in analog and you had dialogue, music, and effects, uh, three people Mm -hmm. doing that job, you had to work simultaneously. Yes. But with Pro Tools, how is it that you all can work independently? Is it because you all are working on different Pro Tools rigs that are locked together? Yeah, we're all working on, on different Pro Tools. Well, first of all, we went to Mixer, even in the analog days, towards the end of the time that I was at Sony, we stopped going three mixer and went two mixer where I did dialogue and music and then the effects guy did effects and Foley. So that changed that dynamic also. Mm. And which made a lot more sense, actually. It made a lot more sense because dialogue and music work a lot more together, effects and Foley a lot more together. And so it made a lot of sense. So they, they went that way. So when I left Sony and went to, it was Larson Studios, they had Control 24s, first generation of Control 24s. I had my own system. Effects Mixer Mixer has their own system. And then there's the record system. So you can take each other offline and online. And even though you're playing through the same speakers, you're basically, you can work on your own. I mean, he could, a lot of mixers today, effects mixers will work on headphones to start and then tie in later, but we'll work completely separate. And the beauty of it is you're basically both doing pre-dubs. You basically have the, you know, you can do pre-dubs because you're not listening to each other. Hmm. You're just focusing on whatever you're working on. So, I mean, I've had mixers that work on headphones. I've had mixers that didn't work on headphones. Um, For eight years, I worked with a great mixer, Lyle Engel. And the wonderful thing about him was we worked through the same speakers. He didn't use headphones. And people would be going nuts listening. You know, we'd say, don't pay attention. Day one, let us just go. And I would do my dialogue, and he would be working through the same speakers and doing his sound effects and Foley and stuff. Um, he would position everything, get everything all set. Every time I'd stop, I'd hear a crash or a bang because he would just take the opportunity. Or I'd go outside, and at the time I was smoking, so I'd go outside and have a smoke break, and then he'd make noise. He was wonderful because he also knew how to... He would hear me start notching, and he would stop. I mean, he was very respectful of what I did, and I was very respectful of what he did. At the end of the day, I'd give him an hour or two to catch up on, you know, specifics, and then we'd do a play down together. Now, the mixer that I work with now, Scott Weber, he's wonderful. He works on headphones until we do our play down together. And a lot of mixers, effects mixers do that. So he works on headphones. I'm working on mine. I'm running the big picture. He's using the picture on his screen. You know, it's we're both doing our pre-dubs. And we've worked together now long enough so that when we do get it together, we're pretty much, we're close to being there aside from tweezing it and getting it all, you know, 
set Can you up. give us the definition of what pre-dubs is? In features, it's taking, say, 100 tracks down to 20 tracks. Okay. Okay. It's getting your EQ set. It's getting your ADR matched in for, for dialogue. It's getting your music penciled in. It's getting, for effects, it's getting all your backgrounds set and your hard effects and your Foley set against what you're listening to. And a lot of times they'll be listening to a guide track in their headphones. And we're getting everything penciled in so that when we lock on together and play it together, he may have to adjust overall his ups and downs, Mm -hmm. but his relative levels are pretty much there. My relative levels are pretty much there. So we refine as we go through it. And this way, the show is penciled in by the end of our play down together. Our, our levels are, are penciled in enough so that when we play back for a, a producer, mm-hmm. they can hear it in total and then fine tune with us what their vision is. I see. And do you ever find yourself in the position where you're saying, hey, you know what? I, I, I think that, that in that scene, your your effects are way too loud. They're getting oh, in the yeah. way they vocal. No, they're... There are times where I look over and I go, less, less, less. Or, you know, my favorite line is, a DB down is not going to kill you. Just bring it down. You know, <laughs> it's, it, but here's the thing. We have the LKFS and, you know, our standards that we have to broadcast to. So we're all watching meters. There are times where I just, I just think that, you know, a gunshot or a screech or certain Things are just too excessive. I kind of listen and I go, you know, man, if you bring that down a dB or two, it's still going to kick ass and at least it'll get broadcast. Because if it's not within spec, aside from maybe getting kicked back, it's not going to broadcast. And you hear that all the time where all of a sudden there's this big fight scene and everything gets quiet. You know, it's just the compressors grab onto it and just bring it right down. So I'd rather it be broadcast in the proper perspective than drag the rest of the sonics down with it because it's hitting the compressor of the network. Hey, I want to give a shout out to our friends over at Audio-Technica. They help make the working class audio podcast possible. You can find them at audio-technica.com. They, of course, offer headphones, microphones, turntables, turntable cartridges, as well as many accessories that you might need, like headphone replacement cables and headphone pads. The great thing is, is there's no hesitation required. If you see something you like, you can buy it right there on the website. So check them out, audio-technica.com. And thanks for supporting our friends at AT. The beauty of, of what you do from a survival perspective, a money perspective is, is that there's always shows being made on a constant Mm -hmm. basis. And there's money behind that, I assume. And it's a different story than it is with records. Definitely. Yeah. You don't get booked on something unless, you know, the bill is going to be paid. I tell everybody that I meet, because I try to mentor as many people as I can, that now is a great time to be in the industry because there are so many outlets. I mean, you just don't have the five majors, you know? You know, you've, you've got streaming outlets like all over the place and they're constantly cropping up and they're all doing really nice content. So there's more work than I think there's ever been before. For those who want to get into this, this part of audio 
into post, into being a re-recording mixer? What resources are there? Because in music, we have like like a shit ton of videos on stealing techniques from all the major people in the world of record making. But what about this area? Well, first of all, Avid, I know, has a lot of videos available. Um, there's uh, an isotope, you know, they have a lot of post, you know, more and more post examples and such. But organizations like the CAS, you know, I'm plugging the CAS, Cinema Audio Society, because I'm a member and I'm on the board, but also because it's a group of mixers, you know, both production audio and post-production re-recording mixers. And we host events and we're also getting involved with, there's a new organization that's being formed, which is a which takes a little bit, like a few people from Sound Girls, a few people from Cinema Audio Society, a few people from Simti, a few people from ATAS, a few people from different areas of the entertainment industry. And this organization is going to hopefully be able to put out the tentacles to high schools, colleges, and professionals to get people interested in knowing that we even exist. Because a lot of people don't even know this is an option. They don't know, they have no idea what are, I mean, when I say I'm a re-recording mixer, they're, uh -huh. you know, they have no idea what we do for a living. Production, sound, mixing, people have no idea what that is. There are so many aspects of post-production that, that kids don't even know exist. And even some of them that go to college and then come apprentice as an editor or apprentice as a production mixer find out afterwards, oh my God, you can do this and you can do that. And there's all these different aspects. They have no idea. This is a world of, of really that's shrouded in mystery for anybody that's not in it. It's just magic. It's movie magic. Yeah. You know, so there are organizations and there are more and more cropping up. But I like, I, I say the Cinema Audio Society and the Academy of Television Arts and the ATAS, uh, the Emmys, etc. But I think the real ground level place is the Cinema Audio Society. And we have a student outreach and we have a student recognition award for the CAS that I'm chairing. That's my recommendation to most people and reach out to anybody they can get their hands on to try to meet them for coffee. I always say coffee is the, the great connector. It is. It's a great connector. And a lot of us are more than willing to do that. I mean, there's a girl in town now who's doing a lot of mixing and doing great and also a good friend of mine, but she got in touch with me when she first moved to town from the East Coast like five or six years ago. Or was it longer? I don't remember how long ago. And we had coffee and I liked her. She reminded me of me when I was getting started. She had all that piss vinegar. She was just, she was ready to go. And so anytime somebody called me about anything, I just referred her. And I was crossing my fingers that my feel, my gut feeling was right. And it was because they all loved her. And she's now moved on mixing major TV shows. And um, I'm so thrilled. She just loves what she's doing. I, on the other hand, am getting ready to move on the outs. <laughs> getting ready to move on the outs. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, get, I'm getting close to, you know, retirement. Huh. So I'm looking at a whole nother different area and aspect of what to do next, if anything. Being that you've been in this business of post for uh, quite a while now, unlike freelance recording engineers who are making records or struggling to make records in many cases, has setting yourself up for retirement been far easier than it would have been had you stayed in the world of record production? That's hard to tell. Although 
to me, the bottom dropped out of the record industry in the early 80s. And I don't think I could have remained just doing records after that time period. So post has pretty much been what I've, what I've done. I set myself up for retirement way earlier than most people because I found a place outside of this country that I decided I wanted to move to. And I bought, a, you know, I built a house there and set up my life there and have a strong community there. And I go there whenever I have time off and that's where I'm going to end up as soon as I can get out of LA and stop mixing, which is what's proving to be the problem. Not whether I can or can't. It's just, I love what I do. And it's still new and exciting after all these years. And I know that where I'm moving to, I will have to give it up. So that's the tough part. So if I may ask, in terms of retirement, does your retirement stem from uh, any kind of pension or is that self-funded through yourself? I'm in the union. I'm in IOTC. And this, there, I have a pension and I have you know, self-funded as well over the years. But I have uh, a pension with my union and there'll be Social Security mm -hmm. and where I'm choosing to live. I'll be living like a queen. Yeah, cost of living is far, far less. <laughs> far lower anywhere than here. Wow, okay. <laughs> so, wow. so that's just, you know, that's, that's in my future and that's what I'm looking towards right now. But I still enjoy mixing and I still love learning new things about my field. And I, I feel very, very lucky that I was able to get into a field, survive in this field, make a really good living at it and still love it, you know, still love going in and dealing with the insanity every day that I work. <laughs> because it is, it's an insane business and schedules are meant to be broken. You have no life that you can actually depend on and you just have to hope that the people in your life understand that mm -hmm. because, you know, you give up a lot to get the luck of being in a field you love doing. Yeah. I did read a little bit about, you know, you talking about work-life balance and how, you know, you never book anything, you know, personal unless mm. it's on a, like a Saturday or Sunday. I will put a link to your interview with April Tucker from uh, the soundgirls.org website in the show notes. Do you have a, your own website or have you got through this career with, without a website? No, I don't actually have a website. Strangely enough, I've gotten through my career without having a studio at home nor a website. <laughs> wow, you are you are winning. I, I'm weird. I am very, very weird that way. I, um, for somebody whose life is so wrapped up in or career is so wrapped up in my life and vice versa, to be able to have not put those two things together. A lot of it is also I've been with the company I'm with, Smart Post Sound. I've been with them for uh, ten years now. A lot of my work comes from clients that have worked with me or word of mouth or them. I haven't actually had to go out and look for work since, you know, I've been with the various studios and stuff that I've been with. So, I mean, I do solicit work from clients and people or things that I want to work on, but because I'm not necessarily trying to promote my career at this stage, mm -hmm. whatever comes my way or people that I want to work with that I continue to work with is really fine for me. I, I don't want somebody, I, I almost, it's almost like, I don't want to find somebody new who's going to count on me five years from now <laughs> because I don't think it's fair. Right. You know, it's like, you know, it's like, I'm not going to be doing this. I'm not going to be here in LA five years from now. I'm going to be gone. I mean, south of the border. Well, let me ask you, uh, uh, <laughs> 
Do you see a possibility in retirement of doing an audio-related thing that brings you joy, like maybe being a freelance record maker? No, I, I leave the music to my partner. Um, he's, he's the musician of the two of us, and he's got his rigs, and he does all his own stuff, and you know he's had great success with that, so that's what he does. And all he does is run everything by me, you know, and I'm like, oh, it's too sibling. You need to, you know, here, do this, you know, or things like that. You know, we do. That's that's my connection to the music end of it. Sherry, thank you so much for coming on and and chatting with me. It's been a real pleasure. And uh, it's great to hear about this end of the audio world. Thank you. Thank you. I've enjoyed every bit of it. And uh, and it's totally a pleasure meeting you, too. Well, thank you. Nice to meet you. You take care. You, too. Sherry Klein here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks for being with me today. want to remind you to stop on by workingclassaudio.com and pay a visit to some of our sponsors, including Audio-Technica, Universal Audio, Roswell Pro Audio, The License Lab, and Gearsluts.com. They, of course, help make the podcast possible. And also want to thank our friend Mr. Cliff Truesdale and Mr. Chuck Smith for their contributions. And thank you for listening week after week and spreading the word. And until next time, my friends, as usual... Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss, you know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.